tape at the beginning. Uh, when I last left the tape, uh, we were talking about step eight. And what had occurred was I had become willing to make amends to someone who I hadn't seen in a long time. The punchline, very briefly, was that about three days later after writing that, I sat down in an OA meeting in a city about 250 miles distant from the city I was in, and who was sitting next to me in an OA meeting but Mark. And we were able to sit down and we were able to share. Ten years had gone by. I still held the guilt of what I had done to this gentleman. He still held guilt as to his abandoning me. The bottom line was that each of our lives had been touched in a very, very special way, and somehow God had rectified any of the damages. He had gone on, met his wife. I then also shared in terms of being able to begin with people who were no longer alive, being able to sit down, get down on paper all of the thoughts and all of the feelings, put a stamp on it, put the person's first, first name on it, and then putting it in the mailbox so that it ended up, and as I said, I'm a very ironic person. When I did that, I realized afterward where the letter actually gets to, and that's the dead letter file. I'm excited about this program, mostly because what I'm able to do is to maintain a level of sanity which I never had before in my life. Can't, can't pull out the chocolate bars, because there are none. What we're going to be doing, we've been talking about this design for a living. We've been talking about the wake-up steps and the clean-up steps. What I'd like to begin with is steps 10, 11, and 12, the maintenance steps. I mentioned that after nine months in program, I came to a retreat and we had a maintenance workshop. And people there, some of them were new to maintenance. Many of them uh, had been in, at maintenance for about a year or so. We had, I guess, about four people who had been at maintenance for three to five years, and I really blessed them. Again, these materials are being turned over to Muriel, who says she'll reproduce them, and you'll be able, I presume, to get them through the intergroup. So if your group does not send someone to the next monthly intergroup meeting, each group should have an intergroup rep. If you don't send it, then you won't get this material. And if you don't have somebody from your meeting and you want the material, you're going to have to send somebody. This is called our maintenance program and how it works, and this was from a 1976 maintenance workshop, so some of the concepts may be a little bit different from your own area. We who are here have found an answer to our weight problem in Overeaters Anonymous. Through the use of the tools in the 12-step recovery program, we hope to maintain our normal weight. No one diet or food plan is prescribed. Newcomers to maintenance will find a great variety of approaches. Each one is valid in its own way if it works for the maintainer using it. We all agree, however, that abstinence is still necessary for maintenance as it was for reduction. We must never forget that our primary problem is compulsive overeating. Weight loss is a secondary benefit. By abstinence, we mean three moderate meals a day, and for some of us, that still means weighed and measured meals, with nothing in between, and this is the old definition that we had, but black tea, black coffee, or low-cal diet beverage. We continue to avoid our personal binge foods. We hope that our addiction, we know that our addiction to food is a threefold illness, physical, emotional, and spiritual, which can never be cured, but can be arrested one day at a time if we, if we do not take that first compulsive bite. 
Many of us who have reached maintenance in OA have found a new way of life, one that includes a new joy and pride in our bodies as well as relief for our minds from shame, fear, and remorse. Many of us have experienced a spiritual awakening, spiritual awareness, and attunement to a higher power which brings one's unknown peace, serenity, and purpose of living. To new maintainers, we say welcome aboard. To regular maintainers, we say keep coming back. To all, we say it is our privilege and obligation to carry the message of hope, beauty, and challenge of the new way of life made possible by the Overeaters Anonymous program. And I can remember being part of that workshop. One of the goals of the workshop was not only to share how people did maintenance, but to come up with um, this piece of literature. And I can remember arguing each and every one of these points as to whether we, I remember we spent a lot of time deciding how we would say low-cal diet beverage. Because we didn't want to say no calorie, and how about the ones that had six calories, and, but there was, at that time, Pepsi Light had only half the calories, it still had sugar, but less sugar. Wait, we just, we left it to group conscience, and now it's not particularly important. We all know what low-cal diet beverages are, seven years later. Step 10 was continue to take personal inventory, and when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. Today, that gives me the freedom. First of all, it gives me the bad news. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes, and I'm going to have to admit them. I have two daily inventories. One is a gratitude list. I usually do it before my first meal. I sit down, and I'm grateful and do a set of gratitudes. I also do it at the end of the day in the very same manner, and I take a look. Is there anybody I've harmed? Is there anything that I've done wrong? But the one that is most advantageous to me is what I call my fragile inventory, which stands for fear, resentment, Anger, guilt, indecision, I don't. lust or love or relationships, and envy. I didn't like this one because of that lust item. Uh, if you have any re or it's any reaction to it, don't worry. Usually by the time you go through your fears, you go through your resentment, your anger, and your guilt, you'll get so caught up, you'll find out what the blockage is. I was fear-ridden. The second most important story in the book, back of the big book of AA, for me, was the man who mastered fear. There's a quote from... Eric or Jung that I'd like to paraphrase because I keep going back and I have trouble finding it. It's, I believe, from the fear of flying. When she talks about, I have not ceased being fearful, but I have ceased to allow fear to control me, especially the fear that says, go back, go back, you'll die if you venture too far. And for me, that was the way that I experienced fear. My problem with fear was so paralyzing that it led me to a nervous breakdown. I was not functioning. 
I came to New York and I laughed at everybody. I said, everybody here is on Valium and in therapy. And within four months, I was on Valium and in therapy. Never, never make a vow. I vowed never to get involved in cancer care again when a 16-year-old girl had the nerve to initially be my patient in February of 1975 and then had the nerve to die in June of February, uh, rather in February of 72 and then died in, February, in June of 72. And I made a vow I was never going to get involved again with another cancer patient, particularly not a teenager, particularly not leukemia. I am one of the leading experts in oral complications of cancer chemotherapy, particularly of children, particularly of leukemia. And so, you know, it says what goes around comes around. What we try not to face persists. You know, what we resist persists. And when we let go and begin to deal with it, we're somehow better people. I had problems getting up in the morning and leaving the house. I had problems getting out of the bed. Thank God people were dedicated enough you know, that I took on pigeons that I, see, I would sponsor anybody because I must have sponsored now probably in excess of 100 people. I sponsored probably only six people for any length of time. I've taken over 100 people who said that they wanted me to sponsor them. And after one day, most of them don't even call the first time. And after one or two days, they stop, you know, they stop coming altogether. But thank God I had one person who for two years in Boston called me every morning. And I used to hate his food. Oy. I used to listen to his food. I can't stand, I personally can't stand yogurt and soft cheeses and cottage cheese. Every morning, half a cup of yogurt and crushed pineapple in its own juice. And I got to know, you know, his menu was very much the same. He was a salesman who was on the road and he had certain patterns, and Tuesday morning he was in one city, and Thursday he used to go to Lowell for lunch, and he used to have haddock menuerie, hearts of lettuce with a ledge of lemon and sweet, well, you know. I could recite, and every once in a while he says, you never listen to my food, do you? I said, I listen to your food. <laughs> you know, and every once in a while he would swap, he would switch something. You know, I'd say, wait a second, today's Thursday, how come you're not going to Bishop's? He says, I'm going to Bishop's, I just wanted to see if you're listening. <laughs> But it was from this silliness of this guy calling me up at 6.45 in the morning that I had the strength to get up. He's back close to 300 pounds. He has left the fellowship. We speak on a weekly basis. He's still in Boston. We still call regularly. He has come back and then decided that you all were crazy, which meant he wasn't ready. You know, but we keep in touch. When I had to, I have many, many sponsors. When I had to buy a car, when my car was dying, I had to buy it on time. And I was taught if you didn't have the money for something, you don't buy it. I had credit cards, I had never used them. I never used them in the sense of, you know, buying anything on time. The only thing that they did was save me from going to the bank to take the money out. And once I spent it, I put the slip with my bank book and deducted it from my balance, 
because I considered that I no longer had it, so it was as if it was deducted. I had tremendous numbers of fear. Somebody had to lead me by the hand. We went from dealer to dealer, and I had to go home and pray, and I had to go to call somebody else. I had decided that I didn't like the situation I was in. It took me six months to put in an application. I went for the interview, and things got misscheduled. There was nobody to interview me. I spoke for five minutes to one person down in New York. I spoke for five minutes to a second person in New York. I spoke to a couple of political friends who had influence in the place, and I put in an application. I was afraid to stand up for my, right, for my rights. I went into the administration of where I was working. I was working in the ghetto up in Boston, and I was told that since the color of my skin was not black and I was in a black ghetto, that I wouldn't be a good role model. It didn't matter that I had gone into the local schools, that I had truants that were, the truant officers were calling me up and saying, what are you doing with these kids? I said, what do you mean? He said, I have a kid who was a truant is now an A student. He says he wants to be a dentist because he went to his dentist. I was very effective at what I was doing, but because of crazy politics, you know, I felt blocked. And I was able to go up and say, I think that this is reverse prejudice and it has nothing to do with what I'm about. And here's what I need. And I said, furthermore, here's what I'll compromise at. And if not, I'm going to have to put it in God's hands and leave as of July 1. And I walked out. I didn't know what was going to happen. It's very funny. Roberta D., I'm going to break her anonymity, was staying up in Boston, had come in for a marathon that weekend. It was a Monday morning. Now, I, many of you know Roberta. She's a very quiet, very refined, very withdrawn, uh, very, I don't want to say asexual person because she's got four kids. But nobody would, you know, nobody would think of her as doing anything wrong, and she would never want any indiscretion. Well, she had stayed over my house that night. <laughs> Nothing, you know, obviously I wouldn't talk about it, but anything <laughs> went on. <laughs> I had arranged for somebody to come at 1 o'clock, pick her up, take her to the airport so she could catch a plane back to New York. The phone was ringing about 15 minutes after I left that morning. And it was New York. It was the hospital that I'm affiliated with. And they said, uh, and, she was, and she just let it ring because, God forbid, she picked it up and it was somebody who didn't know that you know, she was staying at my house. Somebody might, if it was a girlfriend, well, how would she explain this? I don't know what, you know, she shared the trepidation. She finally decided uh, when it, it stopped ringing, apparently it rang again. She picked it up and it happened to be the job offer in New York. See, I had not completed the interview. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if it was a political connection. I know people who had served <coughs> with my current chief in the armed forces. I know people who had worked with him within the professional organizations who had given me very strong recommendations. But I had taken the action. And I came down, and I didn't know what to do. And then Roberta knew that I had gotten this position in New York. I didn't. I came back. I felt miserable. I made an OA phone call. I remember the day distinctly. And then Roberta realized she did not have my number at work. She had her, my number at work back in New York, but she did not have it 
up in Boston. And then she was hoping that somebody would call me. And of course, nobody called for some hours. And finally, just before she was to be picked up, somebody uh, called and said, oh, I'll call Simon at work. She says, you have his work number? Thank God. I got the phone call, and I ended up going to work in a cancer hospital in New York. See, I've been kind of led in a very, very special path. I've always been afraid to make that move. Thank God I've had this fellowship. I didn't know where I was going to live. I came down to the Concord five years ago. I shared the pain. As it turned out, the hospital ended up having enough housing, and so I had a place to stay. I came into New York and was immediately greeted. It was the same way yesterday. I came off the plane, and I'm looking around. They said, this distinguished-looking white-haired gentleman will be waiting for you. And I'm waiting first right where we got off the plane, because we were an hour and a half late. I figured he'd wait at the gate. Nobody. So I walked down to the carousel. I had just carry-on baggage, and I'm looking around, and there's nobody. And then I said, wait a second. I'm not going to look for the most anxious person. Let me look for the most serene person. And that guy was kind of sitting there, looking around. <laughs> And then I squinted, and he had a higher-powered, you know, button. You know, it was a butterfly. And so I, you know, I met my contact. Again, this type of fear. The type of fear yesterday. The plane was turbulent. People were getting nervous. People were angry that it wasn't a meal flight. I used to constantly fear the plane was going to fall out of the sky. Now, I've taught a course uh, at Logan Airport in Boston for people who were afraid to fly. We taught them self-hypnosis. We did systematic desensitization. I was only effective after I had had a major three-and-a-half-hour flight from Washington International Airport up in the air three, three hours. The pilot was a joker. He said, we're going to try this one more time. And we went down and down and down. He says, I couldn't find, you know, all of a sudden he pulls up. He says, don't be alarmed, people. I can't find the airport, so we're going to go up around again. Then he said, we're running out of fuel, so I'm going to have to find a place to land this thing. He was a real joker that night. Uh, and he said, everything's closed up north. Not only were we heading south again, he says, we'll either be in Dulles, which is further south from Washington, or he says, if we can't get into there, I think we can make Richmond. I love this. I think we can make. <laughs> I took the, I got off. They said, by the way, when we landed, this flight is not canceled. We're going to refuel, and then we're going to take off again. I said, not with me in it. <laughs> I may have a 12-step program, but I'm not crazy. <laughs> and so I, you know, I checked into a local, actually a Holiday Inn. And the next morning, there was no flights available. The weather was still miserable. I took the train up. I had spoken down in Washington for OA, as well as taken a course, as well as done a professional lecture. The airline lost my luggage. I had tremendous resentments. I did not put together those pictures for over two years. I had to go back and try to find negatives and have things reprinted, because my best OA pictures had been lost by the airline, and I decided it was God's will. And then I said, sometimes people take a look, and they said, you're thin. You know, I can't believe you were ever heavy. And the pictures do help. I had tremendous resentments. I talked about the entire list that I made. 
When I resented people, it was a long list. Did they carry the burden? No. I carried the burden. I took a look at the person and relived every one of the horrors every single time I saw them, every single time I thought about them. It was me that was blocked. It was me that was going crazy. The book says, just before we do the inventory, anger and resentment is our number one offender. It kills, and that's their words, it kills more alcoholics than any other character defect. It says elsewhere in the big book that for reasons yet obscure, the alcoholic has lost his ability to control and enjoy his eating. It also talks about we've lost the ability to handle anger and resentment in the third place. These crazy alcoholics in 1939, when they were writing this big book, said for reasons yet obscure, what I would like to do is, do we have an eraser? I'd like to give you just some medical information which may help you. Um, in New York, we're cooperating with uh, Jules Hirsch, who is the father of obesity. He's the one who figured out that we, as compulsive overeaters, have more fat cells than anybody else, that these fat cells like to be big and plump, and so they always try to refill themselves. Somebody just went for it. We'll get it. Um, and that these, and that somehow, see, a normal person, when he gets all of his fat cells nice and plump, he tends to just shed the excess calories. They go through his system. You and I, when we have reduced, since we have excess fat cells and they're not always fully plump, when we take in a single extra calorie, it gets converted to fat. They've also studied, and he's the father of the hyperplasia, we have more fat cells and our fat cells tend to be bigger. Well, we've gone one step further, and they're in the process of trying to take a look at what compulsive overeating, you know, what the physiologic basis is. They are rediscovering the wheel. They're rediscovering what we know. He has asked all of the different programs, all the commercial programs, to please give him, at least for people for interviewing, people who are maintaining weight loss. He has had zero response in the past three years from any other program. There doesn't seem to be any other program. And I heard that at my first meeting. At that time, they said, the national statistics said 2%. They did a follow-up on a group of obesity programs. They said, you have a 2% chance. They did a follow-up. 1% of the people maintained their weight loss and were still involved with their active weight loss program. 1% were no longer affiliated with the program, but had, maintained, had gone out and maintained their weight loss. 98% of the people had regained their weight. I assumed when I walked in the door that I was part of the 98. What they said was the last three words you hear at the end is the key to being part of the 2%. Keep coming back. You can have the compulsion relieved through these rooms, nothing else. He has literally hundreds of people, and he only deals in morbid obesity, people who they try to reduce because they're just so overweight, they're killing themselves. They also use those people because if you're trying to find small little differences, you need to have somebody who has a massive change in order to find some of these small nuances.
and so they've reduced down unfortunately multiple times and you know what the frustration of somebody who's honest and who wants to help us and who reduces somebody down to normal and then can't keep us there this man has dedicated his life to trying to find out he's a cardiologist he's not a bariatric physician and he got into this through the back door of trying to help people who ended up with too much cholesterol in the coronary arteries and we know that and he surmised back then that bypass is only a temporary measure which we now know and that a lot of the medications help and prolong life but not for very much very long and the quality of life is not always that good on massive amounts of multiple medications and so he studied some of us he found that reduced obese people are very very different than normals he found that fat people who are fat are very close to normal physiology. And so if you always wondered why your natural body weight was overweight for many of us, for most of us, or why you had trouble maintaining a normal weight, you know, perhaps some of this information will help. It's sketchy. There's not a lot of proof. But let me see if I can you know, try to show it and try to make some sense out of it. Uh, this is a snapshot at the very beginning of discovering for the quote-unquote for reasons yet obscure what what the first premise is is that we are not unlike the diabetic at the turn of the century in which I say you're a diabetic she's normal when I give her sugar I can measure it goes into the stomach into the bloodstream Somehow, it doesn't get very high in the bloodstream. It goes up to 150, maybe 180. Something happens, and it drops back down to normal, maybe 80 to 100 within a few minutes. And if I measure individual tissue cells, and I break them up, they not only have more blood sugar that have, you know, is now into the tissue, but they have a starch known as glycogen. The glucose has been kind of linked together like poppets that have been snapped together and you're now storing that glucose and starch the form of starch and muscles and liver see but you you're a diabetic I give you sugar and your blood sugar goes up to 800 and if I measure the tissue it doesn't get into the tissue and so when you have trauma you don't heal very well and I don't understand it but the kidneys don't like it to have a don't like the blood to have a lot of blood sugar and so the blood sugar gets filtered out into the urine and that's all diabetes mellitus means it means sweet urine you know and I don't understand why you're different than you and then a couple of Canadian researchers independently then working together Benting and Best discovered in 1918 1919 this chemical that we now call insulin that comes from some of the cells in the pancreas. And if I give it to you, the diabetic, I can now measure that if I give you sugar and then I give you insulin, that the blood sugar drops, you no longer spill the excess sugar into your urine, and it now goes into the tissues, but a little bit different than the normal person. It's no longer physiologic. You're not putting it out normally. This doesn't mean that in some point down the line, we're going to have a shot to cure compulsive overeating. What it means is that there are reasons why we react the way we do. Well, let's take the normal fat cell 
really just looks like a big round cell. And if you think of an egg with a huge yolk, the center being the droplet of fat, that's what a normal fat cell is. Think of it as being, if you will, a grape or a plum. See, now if I, if I put any one of you into a bed, and I say, don't get out of bed for three months, then all of a sudden I'll measure you with the amount of muscle tissue you have today. The same sort of area will have less muscle tissue. You'll actually lose muscle cells. If I take you out of, or if I put you up in outer space, one of the reasons we have problems keeping astronauts up there, we haven't figured out how to keep the muscle, even with the exercise programs. But if I put you in bed, or I put you on a reducing diet, I measure the, a certain area of, or volume of cells and fat, you have the same number of cells. The cellularity doesn't go down. All it does is it shrivels up like a prune with a smaller round fat globule. If I begin to measure certain things, what's fat? Fat looks like a comb. It has a backbone and three prongs. These three prongs are long carbon chains called free fatty acids. This backbone is a three carbon molecule called glycerol. In fact, it's three carbons. It means it's propylene glycerol. The men know that they pour it into their carburetor, sometimes either ethylene glycol or propylene glycol for antifreeze. Well, that same material binds together three free fatty acids and forms fat. When it, what happens when we stressed? Two things. When we're stressed, we number one can burn one of two, well, when we're stressed, we have the flight or fright syndrome. Most of you, I think, are familiar with it. Think of the person two million years ago, if all of a sudden you're walking along the jungle and out steps a saber-toothed tiger, you either have to beat the thing up or run like hell. So you're either going to fight it or you're going to flight, get out of there. Initially, we burn blood sugar. The second thing that muscles and brain tissue can burn, so we have blood sugar. The second thing that we can burn is free fatty acids. And the way that we get free fatty acids is we break down some of the fat stores. We have a very strange type of fat. Number one, each fat cell needs a certain amount of energy in order to exist. Our fat cells don't need as much energy. What does it mean? Your friend is the same, you know, you're both 118 pounds. Your friend's a normal person, always been 118 pounds. You used to be 160, now you're 118. Guess what? She can eat more than you. In order just to maintain her 98.6, she needs more calories than you do. You're very efficient. God, why make us very efficient? <laughs> for most of us, and one of the reasons why the gray sheet worked, quote unquote, so well for many people, is that for the 40 to 60 pound overweight female, gray sheet is roughly a maintenance diet. If you don't happen to be the average person who's 150 pounds and should be 110 to 115 or 120 pounds, you may get into trouble following the very specific diet that was formerly known as the gray sheet. But it was a very good thing. You, you essentially 
could reduce your weight with what would be the final maintenance diet. The problem was that most of us dieted on gray sheets. We figured once we got down, we'd be able to eat more. Most of us can't. I mentioned before, when I first reached maintenance, I need three times gray sheet. Guess what? I need about one and a half times gray sheet. I can have a little bit more for one of my meals than is on that stupid sheet. The chart, the chart says that I should be able to have 3,200 calories in order to maintain my weight. I need about 2,200 calories. Translated, if I go on a 2,200-calorie diet, I maintain my weight. Normal person, for normal person, 170 pounds, five foot six, goes on a 2,200-calorie diet. He loses two pounds a week. So that, you know, therein lies one of the problems. What's the second problem? Well, the second problem is is that this fat cell. If you stimulate it with adrenaline, with epinephrine, that's the thing that makes your heart beat faster and go through all these different things, what it does is it releases from that big plump cell free fatty acids. Guess what they found? The reduced fat cell, even though it still has fat in it, still has, in fact, it, I should have made it, you know, it has still a fairly large globule of fat in it. It's just the surface is, is wrinkled because it's not as big a globule. That free fatty acids do not come out of that in response to adrenaline the same amount. In a normal person, you give somebody a certain dose of adrenaline, and what comes out is about, a, the number goes up to about 1,000. The normal is perhaps 100, and, 100 to 150. In us, it goes me, it went from 150 to 185. I get a little bit out, but not terribly much. Normal people, it goes up to eight or 900, sometimes a little bit over 1,000. Well, the problem is that my body can only burn two things, free fatty acids and blood sugar. There's only so much blood sugar, and so the blood sugar drops. The liver recognizes it, releases its stored glycogen. The muscles realize it, releases its glycogen. Problem is, 15 minutes later, I've run out of my stores of glycogen. Don't have free fatty acids. Takes about 20 minutes to a half hour before the liver can begin to produce new glucose all on its own. And if you keep the stress up, the liver will produce more blood sugar. It'll break down protein, it'll break down other tissues It'll take whatever free fatty acids there are and convert it into new sugar. What does that mean? 15 minutes to 20 minutes after you have some sort of stress, you're going to be hungry. You're going to feel palm sweating, palpitations of the heart, dryness of the mouth, and as if, if you don't get anything, you will die. They put me in the study unit. They gave me some insulin normally enough insulin to drop my blood sugar about to 40 or 50. They said, gee, you're having a brisk response. It went down to 17. Below 30 is usually lethal. Uh, I'm able to function at a much lower blood sugar than normal people, which makes it good because most of us probably would have died, or I would have died under those circumstances. The thing was that I had experienced in my panic anxiety, in my response to fear, anger, and resentment, 
I have experienced that same level of discomfort, the palpitations in the chest, the almost co actual coma from ac absolute exhaustion that I experienced experimentally in the hospital. Well, what's the solution? To get a shot so that we can finally get the free fatty acids out? No. These crazy alcoholics in 1934 through 39 discovered that by taking a program professed by the Episcopal uh, born-again movement, if you will, the Oxford movement, which was a fundamentalist Episcopal movement, they found a way by avoiding fear, resentment, anger, having something to do with it, to defuse it, that you never had to have this massive adrenaline which all of a sudden lowered your blood sugar, which made you feel so uncomfortable that you had to go out and have some carbohydrates. These crazy people found out quite accidentally, I remember one of the definitions around the rooms of a miracle or accidents where God chooses to remain anonymous. If you wonder why scientists keep studying the body and find out mechanisms and say, my God, the mechanism is so perfectly balanced and we've discovered on our own, we've rediscovered the wheel, that we can't afford to have resentment, anger, guilt, fear, indecision, lust, and envy. Because whereas a normal person can sustain that type of adrenaline rush for a certain amount of time, and then they call it burnout, they call it nervous exha exhaustion, nervous breakdown. See, the normal person, the executive, the type A personality, is able to sustain this type of behavior. We can't. But we are like that rat that I spoke to. We decide we're going to run down maze number A, you know, door number one. We're going to, you know, somebody, you know, somebody cuts us off. We're going to get up there and we're going to run him off the road and we're, or, you know, we're going to get there and we're going to get in front of him and then we're going to slam on his brakes and we're going to show him except that when we finally get into the situation, we can't handle it, or I can't handle it. Thank God these crazy alcoholics forewarned me and gave me 12 steps in order to be able to defuse a physiologic basis. Well, why did that happen? Why were we selected for this? I'll give you the physical reason. Physical reason is, is that if we go back two million years ago, the cavemen that were living around here had a very interesting thing. In the summer, it's nice and warm here. Vegetation is lush. There's plenty of food. And so we would eat a lot and be hungry, you know, like the bear that's in hibernation comes out and gouges himself. And by, seven, by September, October, we'd be nice and plump. And food would become scarce. And so we'd burn off some of the stores. And the fat cells would get a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller until the point that we'd get to right about this time of year, February, we've had a mild winter, but I think of a severe winter. It's cold outside. The only thing that we can do to warm ourselves is to have this blanket of fat. If we have this blanket of fat, then we can sustain ourselves, but if we burn off this blanket of fat and the cells, remember, I said, they don't put out as much heat, so we need to be very fuel efficient, but what happens if we can put out the same amount of heat with you know, more efficient cells? And so we have those type of cells that are more efficient. We burn less calories to maintain our body weight. 
And if at the same time, whenever we you know, got a little bit aroused, it made us low in blood sugar, which made us a little bit logy, and how we are after lunch, that's reactive hypoglycemia. That I'll talk about in a second. That's because you've gouged yourself with a load of carbohydrate. Your body has put out a little bit of extra insulin. And so your blood sugar then 15 minutes later drops because you put out too much insulin. Your body's not used to 301. And so the hypoglycemic needs to be 601, six small meals. They can't take the massive division that we have artificially discovered in this program for some of us. See, but what happens is, is that the reducing individual who didn't know how many more months he had to survive became very, very tired and just kind of slept most of the day, except when the saber-toothed tiger came in, in which case he was the one who had the reserves. He was the one who had the fat so that he could really get up and run and fight. And so we were the ones who survived the Ice Age. We have clothing today. We don't need the Ice Age. We have central heating. Comes the Ice Age and comes, uh, you know, OPEC getting its way again. Uh, you know, if we don't have fuel, we're going to be the ones that will survive in the lack, you know, of food, you know, when it comes to droughts, when it comes to famines. Unfortunately, we live in a land of plenty, and we don't function very well when we have too much food because we're always hungry, and we always have the ability to be hungry. There's a lot more that they're studying. I don't, you know, I don't want women to raise their hands, but there's a connection in which when you reduce, you stop menstruating. And usually there's a whole bunch of people who said, yeah, it happened. And then you had to rearrange your food plan and add back some carbohydrate. And some of you were then able to start menstruating again. Others did not. There's a connection that they're finding that compulsive overeaters tend to have earlier maturation sexually. We don't quite understand it. It's probably about a year, year and a half early. No wonder our peers were going through, running around, you know, fourth and fifth grade. And all of a sudden, sexual feelings were coming up at an age that was precocious. And many of us came from, you know, we're victims of victims. Our parents were compulsive. Our parents were compulsive overeaters or alcoholics or gamblers. We didn't have the nurturing environment. And all of a sudden, we were dealing things before our peers. And there seems to be a connection there as to why there's so much sexual dysfunction and sexual problems and relationship problems among compulsive overeaters. Something very, very unique. They don't understand what it is. It's, we're just beginning to understand. You know. So is there going to be something around in the next five to 10 years? Probably not. You're looking at the very tip of an iceberg of some research. What we're left with is we're left with a 10th step. Continue to take daily inventory, and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. That's not enough. The 11th step is really the best of the live it up steps for me as personal growth. And it's the step that talks about sought through prayer and meditation to have a conscious contact with God as I understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. I didn't like that step. 
I did not like having to ask something that I couldn't see for help, something that I couldn't touch, something that I could not weigh and measure. See, this I could understand. I know the biochemistry of this. I know where the free fatty acids come in. I know where the steroids come in, because steroids are derivatives of the fat molecules and cholesterol. So I can understand there's something in the enzyme system that makes us different. See, but I can't understand how the spiritual connection works. I can begin to understand it based on some of the physiology. I need to find out exactly what things I must concentrate my energies, because my energies are perhaps more finite, more limited, if you want to use that term, than the normal person. We all of a sudden, you know, are people with very, very special makeups. But it's more than that. My hardest problem is the fact that, and I've seen it time and time again, we are extraordinary people. We tend to be more sensitive than others. We, because of this 12-step program, or this 12-step disease, are able to feel a lot more than I view normal people. I don't think there's a single movie that I've gone to that I haven't cried at the part that's sad, that I haven't felt the exhilaration, you know, when the thing finally gets resolved. Somehow, I always seem to experience a change that seems to be more profound than others. We mentioned it before when we talked about the children, the adult children of alcoholics. Most of my, ex mo mo most of my emotions are experienced as hurt. You know? And I've seen this with other groups. I've seen this, you know, and it's been characterized, you know, about male homosexuals. It's been characterized by how many of you are mothers of a child that's labeled Sarah Bernhardt? You know. I think we can very much understand, you know, the child who, you know, just experiences things with an extra sense of pain. The problem is, is that we feel as if we don't have the support. That's what's so great about the rooms. I knew I was home when I walked into OA because there was nothing that I could tell you. I could walk in here and say, I just shot somebody, you know, because I couldn't stand it. I was angry, and I was, I was going to go out and eat, so I shot somebody, and now I'm at a meeting. And everybody <laughs> would applaud. <laughs> You'd probably get up and sit on the other side of the room. We haven't been, you know. We go to the rooms, particularly if you've been to some of the AA rooms. There are people who've been in jail. There are people. I mean, I've heard it in no way. The people who embezzled. You know, after I left uh, the chairpersonship of an intergroup up in Massachusetts, in fact, it was Roberta who got up and gave a report and said, you know, those people in Massachusetts, that's the way she says Massachusetts, she says, the people in Massachusetts, <laughs> they, they are so involved in institutions. The person who replaced me as intergroup chairman and then when he had to step down, his replacement, both had to step down because they went to prison. <laughs> you know, and so we got involved, you know. These were people who 
had touched us, you know, had gone, come up through the ranks of service, who had a previous life before program, and then went, you know, and served their time. You know, and they were active parts of OA. And while many of us did not condone the charges that, you know, involved them in going to prison, most of us were able to support them, to maintain their abstinence, and to maintain their program of growth, even while they were in prison. What would we have wanted, and this is one of the things I do with the inventory, particularly with resentment, I go back to the situation and I said, what would, that, what would I have wanted that person to say in that situation which would have taken away the pain, which would have taken away the hurt? And then I hear that person saying it. See, because I don't believe today that people are basically malicious. I understand, and maybe it's, again, this context of the, that came from the children of alcoholics, that the people had to act nasty to me or rotten to me or do wrong to me. I still keep that resentment that they were wrong and I was right. I today understand that they had to do that because they had no other way to survive in that situation. During the break, somebody came to me and spoke to me about, I spoke about somebody who was close up here who isn't speaking with me. And the person wasn't here this morning. And we were sitting and sharing, and I asked how the person was, and they gave me a synopsis of what was going on in the person's life. And I said, I am so hurt that my, an my letters are unanswered, because I've written a couple. I am so hurt, you know, that we don't have the relationship that we had for three years as close friends within program. The person said to me, you know, it's funny, I've spoken to that person, and they're hurt over the situation that, we don't, that they don't have the friendship. I never stopped to think that maybe the other person was also hurt. I assume they walked away smiling. Ha, 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 I got even with Simon. I showed Simon. They feel just as empty. And in most cases, it's true. One of my favorite stories is, again, that freedom from bondage. It's the next to last story in the third edition. It's the last story in the second edition. And I resented it because I'd never thought much of an alcoholic woman. I make a public apologies for my previous opinions. I mean, it was terrible. It was bad enough that a man could be an alcoholic, you know, but that a woman would choose to until I understood that it was a disease. You know, but here was a woman alcoholic who ended up teaching me something. She spoke about how to get rid of resentment. You bothered by resentment? It's the hot potato that you want to let go of? She talks about it. Every single morning, pray for the person. It's one person, it took me two and a half years of prayer. I am obstinate. I don't want to let go of these things. But when I recognize the pain, I know the action to take. There's somebody else that I've prayed for for four and a half years. He isn't changing. I am. Today, the feelings of not good enough, the feelings of I can't work past this, last about three seconds when I see him.
That's about it. I see him, my heart starts pounding, I recognize my heart pounding, and I said, you're not feeling good enough. Instead of walking down the hall like this, I stand up. Before I would kind of look, I say, good morning, Dr. So-and-so. He grunts. You know, before it would be me grunting. Good morning. They'd say, gee, the, you know, what, what's the way this guy's acting? And, you know, he finally sometimes says, good morning, or he nods his head. That's about as personal as he can become. See, I found other people to act out my compulsive-obsessive relationships with. Today, I could seek through prayer and meditation just two things, three things. One, a feeling of conscious contact with God. And I'm coming to understand that I can't have your concept of God. I can see my God by listening to you, and we can have theological discussion. And if you're new to program, you know, God of your understanding is not the God of any theology. Um, in chapter 11 of the 12 and 12, it suggests that if you have a religious background in a religion that emphasizes daily prayer and meditation, that you return and re-examine it again. And I would suggest that just as Bill suggested to me to go reread this gray sheet that I had put away for six months, or about three months. They finally got a copy. I looked at it, and I knew it wasn't for me. You know, re-examine some of the things that you've rejected because, again, you may have rejected it for very good reasons back then. But somehow we need, or I needed, to go back and re-examine. It's very funny. I can walk into, again, I'm Jewish, and I've begun to get more committed within my own Judaism. I made every attempt to get here before the Sabbath. I made every attempt not to have to spend money to do the things. I have, by the way, a special exemption from my rabbi as someone of the healing arts says I need to do something, if I need to go someplace to help somebody then I'm able to do that. I don't expect when I get to God, he's going to say, you know, the rabbi was wrong. <laughs> or everybody else wasn't allowed to travel on the Sabbath. You, you know, we're going to accept what the rabbi told you. For me, it's my own, you know, coming to grips with what my responsibility is to me and to help other people. It's, it's very funny. I take a look at it in my own life. It is so easy. We went to a restaurant yesterday, and part of the thing said, you know, such and such, no meat. No meat, but it had shrimp in it. And I picked out, and they thought it was crazy. I was using chopsticks to pick out little pieces of shrimp. I don't eat that for today. It's very simple. I, d I was unable to do that before. Well, it's not enough to make it unkosher. This is the way I reacted. You know, maybe there's not so much starch in this. Today, if I take, taste something and there's too much starch, I call the waiter and I say, excuse me, usually I order things without flour. I ask how it's prepared. If it comes breaded, you know, I send it back. Or I just nonchalantly peel off all the gravy and everything else. 
I found, a, by the way, a very simple uh, guide for abstinence. If any of you were a few pounds up, and I'm a few pounds up from my maintenance weight, I find that food is a barometer for me. And I have to take a look at why my clothes got tight, you know, and what the fitness of my spiritual condition was. But it's funny, it's a very simple solution that I found. Two words, eat less. I guarantee you that if you eat less, you know, you'll gain, you'll gain self-confidence and you'll lose weight. You see, I can guarantee you, if you're able to maintain your abstinence at, and you're eating too much, at some point it's going to bother you. What am I doing all of this effort to stay quote-unquote abstinent and have to carry around this extra weight? You'll no longer be able to, I don't know of another good word. I used, you know, there's a nice word for it. Uh, it's just translated to Spanish. It's called el toro pupu. See, it sounds so much better, you know, than bullshit. But you'll never be able to bullshit yourself again. See, this person, somebody, you know, the AAs, unfortunately, are somewhat blunt. They have an expression in AA they said that the AA program is like somebody spitting in your soup. It's probably still edible, but you'll never enjoy it again. <laughs> My binge foods are no longer enjoyable. That spiritual connection, I separate out my food. I say a prayer before I eat, and most of the time, I remember to say a prayer after I'm finished. If I find there's too much food on the plate, I try to stop and say a prayer. And if after that I find that the food that I've eaten is sufficient, it may not be my full abstinence. I may say, okay, I need a couple more bitefuls of this. But usually after stopping in the middle of eating, if I find myself compulsing, then I'm able to separate out the food that's compulsive from the food I need to sustain myself. It's amazing what the spiritual connection will do. When I feel spiritually fit, you know, it's okay if, if there's not the dressing that I like. So I have my salad plain. If I don't get four ounces of the protein, you know, I said to somebody else, I said, today I don't have fear. You see, the main fear that I was going to have is if I lost too much weight, you know, if I came home this weekend and I lost three pounds, I think you can agree with me, having seen my picture and heard me speak, that I'm capable of gaining back three pounds. I have 25 years of a program of knowing how to gain the food. See, the purpose, and I'm kind of trying to tie things together, the purpose of writing down my meals, what my food plan was when I went on maintenance, was that if my maintenance program didn't work, the changes that I made to my food plan didn't work. I had at the beginning of the book what was my reducing abstinence, and I could go back to it. What happens in this program? You go out and, you know, people binge. When people binge, they come in the rooms and we throw them out again, right? You say, okay, welcome back. The unconditional love. What would have, you know, what would happen? You know, most of you want to be good parents. You know, what happens if 
you get the kid a new bicycle, and I know your heart's pounding because the kid may fall, and you know, you're calling the, the photographers coming on Friday, and you don't want him to lose his new front teeth, or you, do, you, know, you had braces, whatever the stage is, and the kid comes home, and he's got a scraped knee. He says, I don't like that bicycle, I fell off. You come in, we clean it up, you put the Band-Aid in, now go back and play, and the kid goes back and play, goes back and play. Talk about 10-step. Kids show us what a 10-step is. You ever watch a kid riding a tricycle? Toddler, three, four, and five. And he's riding, all of a sudden he tries to turn too quickly and the thing goes over and he scrapes himself. How long does the angle last? 15 seconds. Human beings are naturally incapable of sustaining an emotional response in the absence of pain for more than about 15 seconds. So he scrapes his knee and he holds and he cries. And then if there's nobody around to clean it up, he takes a look, oh, I don't want to go into the house. Mommy's going to hit me for, you know, scraping my new pants anyway. He gets back on the tricycle and goes riding off. If any of your emotions last more than 15 seconds, we're adults. Maybe they, you know, maybe we can sustain attention longer. If they last more than a minute, then that's the abnormal component of anger. Fear. You know what the natural fears are? Human beings only have two natural fears. Take a newborn infant, it will only react to two things in terms of its perception. Loud noises and falling. Everything else is learned. How much of our lives, you know, how many people here have some other fear other than loud noises <laughs> and falling. That's the only guy in the place. Everybody else has one fear I can tell you about. You have a, f a fear to raise your hand and to speak out in public. You know, we all have, are loaded with fears. They have been learned. The day I have a tenth step in which I can ask God, what's the, what's the next right step? And I need your help because I don't have the internal power to carry that out without you. It's just, for me, just that simple. My 11th step prayer is, again, God, what's the next right step? It's putting one foot in front of another. I love the 12th step. Most people only know the first half of the 12th step, and you learned it wrong. You learned it wrong in terms of two words. It's having had a spiritual awakening, as most people say, a result of the steps. It's the result, the one and only supposed result of the steps. It's why you went through all the pain in the fourth step. It's why you went through the pain of going and making the restitution. We just had somebody who made restitution to one of the major department stores. And she went in and she said, when I was a teenager in your such and such store, I stole a dress and I stole slacks and it was probably about $63 at the time and I want to pay it back and he says we have no mechanism of taking your payment. And she says well is there a pet charity that this store has and they said no we we used to have a you know pet charity and then people said well why are you supporting that charity rather than something else. He said you know I understand why you have to make the amends. He said, so why don't you contribute it to
to help other people to know about the type of program that you have because we do have a terrible problem with shoplifting and if everybody could feel the way you did and just reacted by never shoplifting again or never never enabling somebody to be a shoplifter or turning the other you know turning the eye when you see somebody filching something then maybe our problem would be less and so she was she donated it and she divided it with the 60 30 10 you know division 60% to the intergroup 30% to world service 10% to the region you know the amends gives us that spiritual awakening having had a spirit having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps we try and that's the word we always miss we feel very frustrated we try to carry the message to another compulsive overeater which means that I break my own anonymity not at the level of press radio or films but when it comes to sitting next to somebody on a bus or a train or an airplane see I don't know there are normal weight people who are compulsive overeaters I have this prejudice that everybody has to be 70 pounds overweight because that's what my story was I have sponsored people who were anorexic I have sponsored people who were binge vomiters who had always been within a couple of pounds I have sponsored laxative abusers there are many many forms in which people take amphetamine abusers downer abusers it's the same program trying to cope with all of the backgrounds that we have see our stories are very very different so the only expertise I have is my own story but I know that the solution the 12 steps plugs into or can plug into recovery for all of these different individuals the thing that is absolutely incredible to me is that I feel better I go to a hotel and my head still says nobody knows I'm a compulsive overeater nobody will really know if I order the thing that has gravy on it or not I'd like to test and taste what normal people eat yet if I'm at a table and I share that I'm a compulsive overeater then maybe I'm saved from that decision that day because I've shared it's very difficult for me to make decisions with food and so I may not commit my abstinence to somebody but I sit down and I pick and choose the food that I, I take in and when I just one of the tests is if I'm willing to tell quote unquote normal people that I'm a member of Overeaters Anonymous and they laugh what do you need that program for I say because I have physical recovery but it's an emotional and spiritual disease as well and I need to be connected today then I'm connected if not if I hide myself I'm only as sick as my secrets it may not be true for you but for me it is if I hide in isolation then by dessert time I may have to get up and make you know the phone call or I may make a bad choice in terms of having a dessert that big book is a lifesaver there's so many little pieces I want to try to tie together it, I was in the program a year and two months I was maintaining over a year 
I was maintaining with the exception of that November slip and a second slip that I had in April in which I found out that I had added back with my marvelous system. I added back once a month a carbohydrate. I added it back first in March, then in April, then a second time in April, because after all, it wasn't craving creating. When I had it just one time in March, I waited a month before I had it again, except that I was having a half gallon of ice cream again. And then I tried to stop on my own. And it was a weekend before a retreat. And it was Thursday, and I was afraid. I was trying to get out of service at that time. It had been an exhausting year of service. I said, well, if I eat a half gallon of ice cream, I won't feel like giving service at this retreat this weekend. So Thursday night, that was my plausible excuse for an act of insanity. I went out and had a half gallon of ice cream. I mean, I hadn't had anything else to eat that day. And it was my abstinent calorie allotment, except that I felt like shit the next morning. And so I went to that retreat very, very disillusioned. You know, what the hell is this program all about? I'm maintaining my weight loss and I'm maintaining my insanity. They read different pieces. They read that it is the delusion of every compulsive overeater. And I'll make the translation from the big book saying compulsive overeater for alcoholic. That he is like, or presently may be, like a normal person. See, most of us say, we're really compulsive overeaters. Again, if I took a gun to your head, you would say, yeah, I know I'm a compulsive overeater and I'm different than normal people. Except last Thursday night, I really, I was in a good place. I was feeling good. You know, I had lost some weight. I could afford to gain a half a pound if need be. It was a family affair. I didn't want to seem abnormal. You know, we all have these crazy, plausible excuses. And if you ask the alcoholic why he goes back, he has all these plausible excuses that make no sense to him in light of the havoc that it brings. The thought that we are like normal people or presently may be has to be smashed. That was part one. Part two was the fact that for reasons yet obscure, we've lost our ability to control and eat our food. Part three came at the end of Dr. Bob's nightmare. That's the first story in the second section of the big book. He talks about giving service, and there's reasons why he gave service. And then he talks about the fact that the thought of alcohol did not leave him during the first two and a half years of abstinence. And abstinence is his word there. I used to get awfully resentful when my, and he, He's referring to normal people. He'd watch normal people eat, except that I schooled myself that where I once had the privilege, I had abused it so frightfully that the privilege was removed, and it hit me between the eyes. I wish I could have a drum roll and a cymbals clash. That was the piece for me, that I had so abused my craving-creating food that the privilege to have them was removed. It's been five and a half years since I've had candy, cake, or ice cream. The compulsion. I go out, we have a party in the place. I'm the one who usually goes to the store to buy the ice cream. You know, I like to pick out all the different flavors. It's amazing. I went to an ice cream store 
there are about 12 flavors that I never, I was so resentful of them. Why didn't they discover them before I gave up ice cream? <laughs> they sound interesting for normal people. I can walk in there and I'm very, very truthful about it. See, now I would like to have 10 apples. I would like to have a pound of nuts as an abstinent portion. I still would like to abuse all sorts of different proteins. You know, I could go into a Jewish deli and order, you know, huge amounts, you know, of the particular meats that they have, you know, the delicatessen meats. And I occasionally, you know, order eight instead of six ounces. I shouldn't tell the person, you know, because it's only four or eight ounces. It's only a quarter pound or half pound. God forbid I should say that my abstinence is, you know, six ounces. You know, so I'll order a half a pound and then not throw away the extra couple of pieces. But for me, thank God, and I don't know what happened. I was sitting in the room and I heard that and I just went, ah, that's me. That is the truth for me. And somehow the compulsion at that moment, the candy cake and ice cream was lifted. And that's a miracle because I was a half gallon a day abuser of ice cream. I was a Friday night, $10, and now the past 10 years inflation would have made it close to $23 worth of candy and cookies. You know, the compulsion to have that has been lifted. I don't even want to taste it. And when it talks to me, I know that it's emotionally talking to me and I need to get up and call somebody. I wish that this 12 steps I wish to the, that the 12th step ended with trying to carry the message. You're not going to like what I'm going to do. I'm going to spit in the soup of your car driving now. And if it doesn't apply to you, then, you know, put it aside. I can tell whether I'm in a fit spiritual condition, particularly when I'm late for a meeting or I'm leaving a meeting and I'm tired and I want to get home. If that speedometer goes over 55, if the light turns yellow and I push on the gas, then I'm in spiritual trouble because the second half of the 12th step is practice these principles in all my affairs. I have been through three accountants in the last four years. They always want to put down things that I don't have. They said, you're allowed to deduct for a safety deposit box. I said, I don't have a safety deposit box. They said, they don't know that you don't have a safety deposit box. They'll never throw it out on an audit. You know, put down $35. I don't have it. I'm crazy. I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm one of the crazy dentists. I declare cash. My accountant says, you can't do that. <laughs> I said, you're right. I can't not put it down on the form. Last year, I made $600 in cash. Even at 53%, which is what my marginal bracket is, that's 300 and some odd dollars. I would spend the entire year obsessing that the IRS is going to catch me with 300 and you know, so-and-so dollars in back taxes. <coughs> I pay it. I went down to New Orleans to Mardi Gras. I gave a lecture at the dental school. I can deduct my going to Mardi Gras. Can't. I planned it. <laughs> I come back, 
my, my co-workers hate me. We all go to a conference. I put down, you know, the amounts that we spent for meals. Somebody took us out to dinner, picked up the tab. Everybody else collects a receipt. I don't. On the report, I put back, meal picked up by so-and-so. I can't cheat. It's taken, the, it's taken the neurotic kick out of life. See, I was always, see, I was always frightened because I was the type of hurdle jumper that just got over. And I was always afraid that I'd lose my energy so that I'd hit the top of the hurdle and I'd end up on my face. And I knew that it was going to happen eventually. Today, I don't cut the corners. I slow down to 55. And I'm not resentful. When somebody says, excuse me, you're doing 57. You know, I understand for me, I can't do it anymore. Where I once had the privilege, I have abused it so frightfully for me that the privilege is removed. So I have a very square sort of life. I enjoy very simple pleasures. I enjoy watching, you know, little kids running around. I've become so... My face was on front page of the New York Times, front page of the Daily News, several other newspapers in New York City, with Abby Hoffman, when we took over the university. You know, I don't get the neurotic kick. I am so far conservative at this point. Ronald Reagan looks like a commie. No. <laughs> that conservative, I'm not. Uh, I won't get into you know, politics and I should make direct amends. Well, let me make, you know, direct amends to you. We should not be discussing, I should not be discussing for me politics here. Um, for me, I have a very simple program. I begin, I wake up in the morning and I say, for me, a religious prayer, which thanks God for restoring my soul to me and light to my eyes. I usually get up five to 15 minutes before the first person I sponsor. We start off, this person is a little reluctant with the spiritual part, and so we start off by sharing our 10th step, what's happened in the past 24 hours and what our plan for living is the next 24 hours. It takes five minutes to do, for each of us to do that. We don't end by saying, you know, have you finished? We end by inviting the other person, would you like to say the serenity prayer? And if the other person, is, if I'm hurting or the other person's hurting, or I still have something I need to share, or there's something left, if there's something on my 10th step that I've left off, I say, I gotta tell you, yesterday I had a fight with somebody, and I think I'm gonna, I've been thinking of, I think I need to make amends to them, or I think I need to write about it. And then we say the serenity prayer. With people who are willing to accept it, we usually begin with the serenity prayer, share our 10th step, five minutes each, with a little discussion back and forth, and then we end with the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to do with me and build with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. I used to not like the end of that prayer I said, why isn't it thy love, you know, thy power, thy way of life? It's a reminder to me 
that there's not only a loving God, but with my spiritual connection, I get a power that I didn't have alone. There's a certain energy. You come back to meetings, and I'd suggest to you that one of the reasons you come back here is there's a certain power that's in these rooms that is so much greater than ourselves. How many times has somebody gotten sick in a way and you've been concerned? You may have felt a little guilty because you didn't write to them, you couldn't go to the hospital. You haven't, all of a sudden you stop and you say, so-and-so is not in the rooms. How many of us before program felt that if we died, nobody would know the difference? And maybe it would be a burden on our parents, but perhaps with that exception that probably nobody else would do it. Some people have problems with God as a spiritual uh, father, if you will, or a parent figure. Let me, let me take that because many of us didn't have good role models in certain aspects of our parenting. You're going to give me a five-minute mark when I need it? Okay. I don't know how many of you are parents. If you're not, imagine yourself at this point as being a parent. If your child came down with leukemia and needed to have a bone marrow transplant and you found out that either New York or Seattle or Houston were the best centers, you know, or St. Jude's Hospital or City of Hope was the, you know, one of those centers was the best place, how many of you would not do whatever you needed, including mortgaging the house, including, you know, as with, um, blocking the French author, in which the whole story revolves around the father breaking the window and stealing a loaf of bread. You know, Les Miserables, you know. How many of you would not do whatever you needed, including breaking the law, to get your child there? And isn't it our own grandiosity that we feel that we would be better parents, and some of us don't even have kids, you know, than a loving God is to us. When you leave today, even though it's overcast, even though the flowers haven't started to bloom yet, take a look at the browns and the exposed earth, take a look at the grays of some of the leaves that are still there, that are mulching, take a look at some of the green that's beginning to come up from the ground, Pick one of those colors, and can any of you create that? That very much, by the way, was the higher power that Bill Wilson had. And I really suggest that you go back and read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Boys, Good Old Timers. Read AA Comes of Age. There's some outside books. There's one that's called uh, just Bill W. Uh, by Robert Thompson. Go back and study the roots of AA. And you'll come to understand, Bill, thank God, had the compulsion relief, but never had a spiritual awakening, other than thinking about God as some sort of nebulous person. Dr. Bob was older, had every, if you read Dr. Bob in the good old timers, you'll see how he had almost every spiritual writing. He talked about getting and kneeling at his bed every evening in prayer. And yet it took two and a half years for the compulsion in him to be lifted. You know, you begin to hear bits and pieces of your spiritual, of your emotional, as well as your own physical story 
in these rooms. I get strength by being with other compulsive overeaters. I didn't know on Tuesday morning when I got up that I would be here today. I need to go home and clean the house. Tonight was my night to clean out the stove because in two weeks it will be Passover and to put away everything that we use during the year and to take out special dishes. You know, I will have the strength and I know I will have the strength to be able to do it. I had problems because I came home from the Concord and I needed Monday night to do the laundry. I'm going to let you in a secret. I was a lot more tired Thursday night and I had used my last two pairs of socks. It was a very simple matter because today I try to dress becomingly in order to do that. There was a certain spirituality connected because I was not just cleaning the clothes for myself. I was cleaning it because I wanted to be able to share and I wanted you to hear as I walked in like a slob. Somebody said, Simon, there's a change in you. I said, yeah, I shaved the mustache. When I first lost the weight, I had no facial hair. I had no chest hair. I had just a little peach fuzz on my face. I was 25. I had gone through early puberty, but had very little facial hair. I lost the weight and began to grow facial hair. I went away with an AAOA person and an Al-Anon person. The three of us went on a sailing, uh, a small sailboat from Boston down to Martha's Vineyard. It was four days before I had a chance to get fresh water to shave, and every man who goes to sea is supposed to grow some hair. You know, I have all these program things. And so I grew a mustache as my sign of being older. I also could not shave it because I didn't feel good about myself. I felt as if I was able to keep a stiff upper lip. Nobody could tell my expression. I could stand there even though I was dying inside or I was about to cry or I couldn't lie to somebody but I didn't have the mustache. I could hide behind it and the pain of having it was great enough that one morning I woke up and I looked at myself and I said it was time. I no longer need to hide. If by not having the mustache I feel as if I can't tell a white lie, then maybe I shouldn't be telling a white lie. If all of a sudden whatever I'm trying to express will be hidden, you know, what am I trying to hide? I can't be anything but Simon today. And I'm beginning to discover who that character Simon is. I want to close with a poem. This poem was given to me at a moment in which I was contemplating suicide. A very, very dear therapist, a friend of mine, who was one of the first people to teach me hypnosis. I use hypnosis in my work as a medical modality. I don't do stage hypnosis. He sat me down and he was able to share with me the following. And just where you are, if you can maybe shift over and just hold somebody, because I think that because we're about to run out of time on the tape, I want to get this in. For me, this is the resolution of both the cleanup steps as well as the lipid up steps. At some time, we've all been a disappointment to someone. 
Perhaps we were conceived at a time was, that was difficult for our parents. At some time, we've been a disappointment to someone. Perhaps we caused pain or inconvenience on our arrival into this world. Perhaps we weren't the right sex that our parents desired. Perhaps we didn't live up to their expectations as a child. Too short, too tall, not fast enough, not smart enough, not well coordinated or too fat. Perhaps we grew up, as we grew up, we disappointed our parents, our relatives, our teachers, schoolmates and friends. Perhaps sometimes we couldn't live up to our own expectations or to reach our own goals. That may have been the greatest of our disappointments. But somebody had to care. Somebody had to care in order for us to be conceived, if only for a few moments of love. Somebody had to care for us to be carried for nine months and to see that we were not aborted. Somebody had to care to provide food and clothing and a home when we were helpless infants. Somebody had to care. Somebody had to care to see that we were not abandoned. Somebody had to care to see that we got some schooling. Somebody had to care or we wouldn't have come this far. Somebody had to care or we would not have found OA. Somebody had to care to tell us where our meeting was. Somebody had to care to give us literature. Somebody had to care enough to share at our first meeting. Somebody had to care enough to give us their phone number. Somebody had to care enough to offer to be our sponsor. Somebody had to care enough to really tell us who they were. Somebody had to care to share their program, particularly in times of our need. Somebody had to care in order to organize this meeting. In short, somebody had to care in order to bring OA into our lives. Somebody had to care, and that's what I'm talking about when I share my enthusiasm for life, for the OA program, and its way of life. Somebody had to care, and I believe that's the way that our higher power works. Will those who care to please join me in the Lord's Prayer? Father, our Father, who art in heaven, 